Good morning, Twitter. I'm Hayes Brown. She's Sylvia Obel. It's another Blackout Friday, and Black History Month just keeps on trying us. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. (laughs) We have a lot to get through today, but we have to start with the news that President Trump will be making an announcement any moment now. Yes, he will. He will be signing his national emergency declaration on the southern border saying, you know what? I want that wall and I want it now, Congress. I'm going to take the money I need and just wall it up today. I'm going to do that. <laughs> That's your Trump impersonation? Not at all. That's not my Trump impersonation. That's just... <laughs> sorry. You're speaking like small sentences. Anyway, I'm sorry. Um, I did notice that the press secretary announced this by using an iOS press release. Yes, she did. Look at this mess that she tweeted out last night using the Notes app. She just said that we. she's going to declare that the president is going to declare a national emergency on the border. It, the fact that Congress said no to this, that the president is using Still. this runaround, dude, has a lot of people really concerned, but it's not like the wall's just going to appear tomorrow. You know, mm. uh, DOJ told Trump apparently that uh, the wall will probably be blocked in the court from the second that he signed the declaration, but the administration thinks they'll win an appeal and eventually get to build this wall. This wall that will keep all immigrants out. All immigrants out. Because and a wall, drugs. a singular wall can do so. Drugs and wall. One drugs point. and immigrants out because wall, period. Duh. Simple math. Simple math. This seems like a good moment as any to take it to the timeline. Friends, screenshot the most random note to yourself in your notes app and send it to us using the hashtag AM to DM. Whatever you have from like 2 a.m. We just have like, I got to remember this in the morning. Dream notes. You roll over. Right? Screenshot. dog pig. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Shifting gears. We have to change to another important story. There's the Jesse Smollett news out of Chicago. Now, there's a lot of moving parts here. So we're just going to go with what we know and what we don't know. Let's start with this tweet from ABC7's Rob Elga. Multiple sources tell ABC7 Jussie Smollett and the two men who were being questioned by police staged the attack, allegedly because his character was being written out of the show Empire. But then a Chicago police spokesman tweeted this. Media reports about the Empire incident being a hoax are unconfirmed by case detectives. Superintendent Eddie Johnson has contacted ABC7 Chicago to state on the record that we have no evidence to support their reporting, and their supposed CPD sources are uninformed and inaccurate. Which leaves us, I guess, where at this point? Confused, mostly. Confused, mostly. I think that's right. It's been, what, two weeks since this alleged attack happened, right? And we still don't know the basics about what actually went down, and that's just maddening, to be honest. Like, the fact that we don't know yet, for sure, what happened when Jussie Smollett was walking down the street in Chicago. Yeah, or the like the idea that the fact that like what we were told mm-hmm. is not like you think in you know like hate crimes could be the situation where it mm-hmm. happens the people get upset and then that's it. But this process has been such emotional uh, whiplash. It really has been, and it's been really hard to follow. I've even really had to has. check out of it a few times. I just mm-hmm. like I feel like the people there are people out there who are still supporting Jesse, and there are people out there who are going with the new reporting that says, no, this was a hoax, and there's a lot of clashing out there in terms of information. It's all a very complex story, and we're going to continue watching it uh, to see how it all develops. Yeah. Well, in more positive Black History Month news... Yes, please, we need this. God, we take our wounds where we can. Breathe. BuzzFeed News tweeted, Jackie Anna has been unapologetic about holding the makeup industry accountable to the Black women who buy its products. Now she's one of beauty's most influential critics. 
Darian Harvin profiled the glam queen for BuzzFeed News and joins us now. Hey, Darian. Hi, how are you guys? Good, hey. how are you? Good. All right, so here's a quote from your story. I can have a celebrity come to BeautyCon with 20 million followers, and that doesn't get the kinds of herds screaming, losing their minds the way they do for Jackie. Can you explain what makes Jackie, especially someone like me who hadn't really heard of her before your profile, unique from among you know, the plethora of beauty vloggers and influencers who are online right now? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Well, I think the reason why I wanted to profile Jackie is because I think her juxtaposition in both like the celebrity, I would say, and influencer space is really interesting. Um, Jackie has had her YouTube channel for 10 years and Throughout that entire time, she has been just as critical and probably over time um, has continued to keep it more real. And I think that as there is more, as there really becomes, um, as influencers start to make more money, um, they start to work with brands more and there's more pressure for them to make a livelihood. Sometimes I think that their ethics are compromised. And to me, it really has come across, even before I met Jackie, that she wanted to stay consistent with her community. She understood them and she really understood just that um, she couldn't fool them. And I felt like now that we're in this space where um, I think that, that we could argue that people are using in inclusivity in brands and marketing, um, are using that as this way to be cool. Um, Jackie has been doing this forever and now people are starting to accept and like her um, more than they did and are willing to work with her now because they know that's what she does. Yeah. Can you explain why it's so vital to have a Black woman wielding this type of power role in the beauty industry? It is so incredibly um, important. I would say that if you are familiar, I think even just as our experience as Black women, Sylvia, um, we are familiar with, um, I think as time has gone on, um, how there have started to become more options. I think even specifically thinking about foundation and shades, mm -hmm for us, but it has not always been this way. Um, like since the creation of, of makeup and putting things on our face, at least within the US, um, we have not always had all of the options. Um, there are even claims that people, or that we don't even wear foundation or that, um, or there aren't enough of us who are wearing foundation um, to, to produce our shades. And so now that we are, we, that there's someone like Jackie who people are listening to more, um, it's just really important to have her in this space because um, number one, she's been talking about it for a long time. And number two, she represents a, um, a huge, uh, a huge demographic, obviously like within, um, within the beauty industry. Right. Right. So it's interesting you say that she's been talking for a long time. Cause I think that you wrote that one of the things she said is that she got into doing makeup because no one really knew how to work with her darker complexion. You see a lot of brands trying to get into the space for makeup for black women now. Do you see this some sort of like cause and effect thing where as more black beauty influencers are on the rise, makeup brands are racing to catch up? Or where do you think the dynamic is there? Yeah, so I think there I think there's two. I think that the big player in this has been Fenty Cosmetics. I think that because Rihanna um, released um, her makeup line that is associated with Kendall Holdings, which is a business under um, LVMH, which is Louis Vuitton. Um, since that really happened, that kind of was a starting in a in a push point for brands to say, "Oh my God." 
wow, there are tons of women of all different shapes and sizes and complexions who um, really, really want and are into this brand. However, I think it's really important to know the context that there are some brands who have been um, really creating like makeup shades for women of color and for and for different undertones for a while. I think MAC is one. I think Bobbi Brown is one. Um, but I think that Fenty is really notable and important in, in this conversation because they either, one, encouraged um, other brands to um, expand their lines. Something that Jackie actually did was she worked with a brand called Too Faced to expand their foundation line by 11 shades. And granted, she had been working on that before Fenty had released, had ever done their first release. Um, I think that Fenty still played a really important role in um, just showing brands and showing makeup brands that women of color want variety and they want choices. Yeah. And I think that um, it's really interesting because Black creatives often complain about being, you know, like influencing culture but not profiting off of it. But you mentioned Jackie's partnership with Too Faced and it's one of many, you know, uh, partnerships that she has in the beauty industry. What can we learn about her career trajectory about getting dividends off of how we influence a culture or industry. How do we get that coin? Yes. During the bag. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I think that Jackie is unique in the sense that she has been doing this for the past 10 years um, consistently. And she has really grown with her audience. You know, she hasn't always shown her most charismatic side. Um, I, I feel like this is really cliche to say, but... The reason why people, I would say across all um, races, like political statuses, um, Democrats, you know, across the country, no matter where you live, the reason why they love her is because they can relate to her comedy and because she just she's decided to be herself. And so I think that that has been incredibly crucial in in who she is. And I think even in terms of celebrity, I, I, I really wanted to write this because I feel like there is this gap between who we view as celeb as Hollywood celebrities and who we view as celebrities because not just because they're influencers but because they are content creators and essentially they have their own mini media companies mm -hmm. and so i just thought it was really important to highlight an influencer who wasn't an influencer just because they have two million followers but they're an influencer because um they're speaking out uh, to their audience big or small um about what they do and it's driving and specifically for jackie it's driving money into the beauty industry so so do you think that influencer as a job is going to, you know, peter out as the internet moves on to other trends, as other like platforms become more prominent? Or do you think it's a career trajectory that's going to stick around for a while? You know what? I'm not really sure. Um, but I will say that I think that as any adults or any young people, or really whatever age you are as an influencer, but specifically, I think that if you're an influencer in your 20s, I think it'll be interesting to see what else they get into, what else their interests are. I look at someone like um, Alyssa Ashley, who is another really big YouTuber and um, makeup YouTuber, and she is really obsessed with photography and she takes amazing photos. And I'm seeing her starting to take uh, photos of other celebrities. And so I think it'll just be interesting to see what else they get into, what else they're interested in and in, in how they transition into something else. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us, Darian. This is a great conversation. Thank you. All right. Well, we've got a packed show today. We're going to be talking to Congresswoman Lauren Underwood and get a reaction to Trump's speech. Plus, Angie Thomas and Kiki Palmer are here. But up next, we read your fire tweets. Stick around.
Welcome back. We got some Friday Fire tweets for your viewing pleasure. First up, Asia, you tweeted. Due to personal reasons, I will be going completely off the fucking rails. <laughs> I mean, I, I need to start getting on that. Just anytime I know I'm about to be a mess, just putting it out there in a tweet, just FYI, everyone knows it's not my fault if you come at me during this period. For real. Okay, well. Tony Childs tweeted, I yelled out, stilettos in the office today, and my black coworker finished with pumps in the club. Hey. If this isn't the sign of Black History Month, I don't know what it is. Thank yes. God, we have something good today. <laughs> we rocking stilettos, crime mobs. Shout out to crime mob. Shout I'm out. Anyway. Mm. All right, so this is a twofer. Yesterday, the New York Post tweeted, Amazon pulls out a $3 billion deal to bring headquarters to Queens. And Kashana followed up with this fire tweet, it's Valentine's Day and pulling out is the truest form of love. I, you know what? So we we'll let hear. you have that. That's well, what we've heard. Allegedly. 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 Can't say for sure. <laughs> Some of us are here despite that. Anyway. These <laughs> 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 nice tweeted. Next year, maybe we just do like a Black History Week or afternoon with like light appetizers or something. Right? This is, because this month has been a trash. It's been <laughs> so trash. The problem is, even with 28 days, it's been too many days like of like, where something new can happen. Like, with an afternoon, just get it all out of the way right now. It's like 28 days of blackface. I'm tired. Oh, I'm so tired. tired. Okay, you ready for this tweet of the day? Yes, let's do it. Oh. Tweet of the day comes from Krista. My very Haitian father told me a story tonight about how he wanted to leave a girl but didn't know how to tell her. So he moved out shirt by shirt. I repeat, shirt by shirt. <laughs> like, how do you even pull that one off? Do you tell like, him you're doing laundry? Like, like for a month? Like, like how many clothes did you have, by the way, too? Like, was this like her place? And you were just like slowly grabbing your toothbrush or did you share an apartment? I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what a way to be afraid, like afraid of conflict and right. conversation for real. Anyway, coming up, you get to see BuzzFeed News culture editor Tommy Obaro to interview with New York Times bestselling author Angie Thomas. But up next, we are going live from the district. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. We're going live from the district with Congresswoman Lauren Underwood. Good morning. Hi, Sylvia. Hi. So good morning, Congresswoman. Okay, let's start with Trump's declaration of a national emergency to build a wall on the southern border without congressional approval. He hasn't spoken yet, but given what we know so far, what's your response to the fact that he's trying to do this with this legislation that Congress passed decades ago to declare this national emergency? Well, it's incredibly problematic. What he's trying to do is usurp the will of the Congress and really the will of the people that we represent. And the Constitution's very clear. The power to appropriate money uh, and to fund programs lies in the Congress and not an executive power. And so um, I'm very disappointed and I'm looking forward to hearing exactly what the president says. Will you push for Congress to file a legal challenge to this? Well, I think that we've already heard about the intention for that kind of a uh, legal recourse in terms of litigation. I also know that there's been discussions about a joint resolution from the House and the Senate. Uh, those are the two main avenues that we have 
uh, in the legislative branch uh, to respond. And I believe that we are uh, considering both approaches. So you're one of the most high, part of one of the most high profile freshman class that we've seen in a while. What's that like? And why do you think that you don't get quite the same heat that some of the other freshman Congress people do? Well, let's just be clear. I'm not here for heat. <laughs> this is an incredible opportunity. Honestly, it's an incredible opportunity to represent some uh, wonderful people in Northern Illinois. My district is outside of Chicago. We have the Wisconsin border. It's rural and it's suburban. And it's my deep honor to be able to represent them every day by casting a vote in the U.S. House of Representatives. When I decided to run, it wasn't to have celebrity or notoriety or any of these things. It was really to do the work. And so, so over the last six weeks, we've had a chance to do that. You know, we ended the shutdown. I introduced my first bill, which is to help save healthcare and protect pre-existing conditions. Um, and we've even had a chance to respond to Me Too and make sure that Congress is being held to the same standards that companies all across our country are, uh, making sure that workers are protected from sexual misconduct in the work in the workplace. And so we've been incredibly productive um, and certainly excited to to be able to continue to share this story with my neighbors at home and uh, here around the country. So just really quickly, though, you said something interesting there. You didn't do this for celebrity or notoriety. Are you saying that some members of the freshman class did run for celebrity or notoriety? No, 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 that's not what I'm implying at all. But I do think that we've gotten a lot of attention. And that's because for the first time, we have you know, 100 plus women serving in the House. With our election in November, we've drawn down the average age of a representative by at least 10 years. And so now we have this wave of youthful energy. Uh, we are from all corners of the United States and really bring unprecedented diversity to a body that had been at the beginning of the founding days of our country uh, limited to wealthy white landowners, right? We know this. And so I understand why there's a lot of attention and interest in the individual representatives, but I don't think that that was the motivating factor for why we, each of us, why we got into um, our races and why we ultimately decided uh, to put our names on ballots, uh, which is truly to serve our communities. Right. In an interview with The Cut, you said that you actually live with a roommate, Congresswoman Katie Hill. What's it like having a roommate yeah. that's also a member of Congress? Well, it's really fun. So here's what's incredible. Uh, I think you all know uh, the youngest member in Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's 29. Then there's uh, a member from Iowa, Abby Finkenauer, who's 30. Katie's 31. I'm 32. So we have, and then there's another guy, Josh Harder, who's also 32. So there's five of us, 32 and under, and we all get along so well. And it's so fun being able to live with Katie, right? Because there's so few people in this country who've gone through this incredible experience of getting elected. So few people then who come into an institution that literally um, doesn't have, you know, the Congress functions on paper. So <laughs> we're in the digital age and the Congress is not necessarily there. So to be able to have a roommate that shares this point of view, that we can go through this experience and support each other, it's been really fun. Um, she's from California, so brings a totally different perspective on what's going on here in Washington. And uh, let me tell you, we have a great <laughs> time at the apartment. Hey, I mean, I first of all, I can't wait to see what kind of parties you guys host. The kickbacks must be lit. Must be. But <laughs> kickbacks. Are you kidding? We've been trying to keep government open. There is no kickbacking. <laughs> well, 
I mean, you gotta do both. At least somehow, I guess. Right? Uh, but, so what do you make, though, of yeah. the effort to ban members from sleeping and living in their offices that uh, the Democrats have been trying to push for? Well, I don't presume to know the financial circumstances of every member, but I do know that the United States House of Representatives and each of our individual member offices are workplaces. They're workplaces. They are not living quarters. And so I am so fortunate to have over 10 employees and I would not choose to live in my workspace where my employees are expected to maintain a professional uh, demeanor and make sure that we are having an output and service to 720,000 people. Um, I think that, you know, this is an important conversation for the House to have an upfront way um, because we do know that there are some members because of life and financial circumstances where they may not be able to afford two residences. And I think that, you know, as a millennial serving in Congress, um, I certainly appreciate and understand that. I've often said on the campaign trail, if I had you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt, I wouldn't have been able to run, much less win this election and serve in the House, right? Um, and so there is a considerable financial burden and uh, financial risk that each individual candidate and or member assumes by taking on this job. Um, but I do think that uh, the attention provided to this issue is timely and important. Yeah, so you tweeted this yesterday. It's been 11 years since the shooting at NIU. Since then, we've seen gun violence in elementary schools, concerts, churches, and Parkland one year ago on the same day. Enough. I came to Congress to mm -hmm. act that starts with HR 8. Everyone who buys a gun needs a background check. Now, the, ju that, the Judiciary Committee just moved that measure forward. Do you think the dam is starting to break on this? Finally, yes. yeah. What, what do you think it'll take, though, to actually get something not just passed but signed? Well, here's the thing. Universal background checks is something that's supported by 97% of the American people, 97%. And yet, it has been over a decade since we've had a hearing on a bill like this, a gun violence prevention bill. And so a couple weeks ago, when the House Judiciary Committee had the hearing, that was groundbreaking. Then for that same committee to pass a bill out of their committee so that it can move to the floor of the House is another groundbreaking step. So I don't take any of these steps for granted. I feel pretty confident that we're gonna be able to pass HR 8, a very important foundational bill, which will then allow us to take further action to protect communities all across our country. So NIU, Northern Illinois University, is a premier public university in Illinois, and it's adjacent to my district. 11 years ago yesterday, they had a campus shooting, and we all thought, this will never happen again. Surely this will be um, the last straw that will spur some action. And then, as we all know, we've just seen these cases pile up and pile up, and with you know, a Congress that had been unwilling to act. So I don't want anybody to discount the progress that is happening in the House. And I challenge Senator McConnell and the senators um, in their Republican caucus to you know, make sure that they are bold enough to give this bill the due consideration in the Senate. Uh, the American people have clearly spoken, and we want action on this issue. And so this is a bipartisan bill. It's not partisan. It's not political. It's a safety issue, and it's quite candidly the right thing to do. And so I'm honored to be able to support it. I'm proud to be in a caucus and proud to be in the House of Representatives that's going to pass this bill. Well, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you. It's been so fun. Happy Black History Month, everybody. Black History Month. (laughs) Up next, Tommy Obaro sits down with the Hate You Give author Angie Thomas. Stay tuned. Senior Culture Editor here at BuzzFeed News, and this is The Sit Down. I'm here with Angie Thomas, New York Times bestselling author of The Hate You Give and on The Come Up. Hi, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, So let's talk about your second book, which is out. Um, Congratulations. After such a successful debut novel, what did you do? Why did you decide to explore what you did in the second book? You know, for me, it was important to go back to the neighborhood of Garden Heights. Um, On the Come Up isn't a sequel or a spinoff to that you give, but it is set in the same neighborhood. And I wanted to return there and see what it's like for a young person there now after the fact, after everything that happened in the Hate You Give, you know, um, how does a young person there operate? How do do they continue to use their voice? So Mm -hmm. it felt fitting to do a hip hop story there, too. You know, just thinking of the origins of hip hop and how it started in the Bronx after such chaos and everything, it felt fitting that I go to a, back to the neighborhood after such chaos um, and, and, and start this hip-hop story. So I wanted to speak to young people and show them how using their voice, even in the midst of people criticizing how they do it, is still important. Okay, great. So let's talk more about the protagonist of this book, Brie. How is she different from Star, who is the protagonist in your first book? Mm-hmm. You know, um, it was really important for me to show how different they are because, you know, people assume two black girls from the same neighborhood they're going to be just alike and that is so far from the truth Mm -hmm. so Brie is a little more outspoken than Star Um, she's a little more impulsive and star she she speaks from her heart immediately um, and doesn't really care about what people think and then also she's often um, criticized for how she speaks and she's often viewed as someone she's not um, she's often viewed as being kind of harsh and and an and angry black girl and all of this and that when the fact is she's just a passionate black girl mm-hmm. so it was it was important for me to show these two young women who are so different but they both have powerful voices and they both use their voices in powerful ways mm-hmm. So with both of your books, you focus a lot on activism with these young black women. Why is that important for you to to bring that up in your novels? You know, it's really important for me because I think of the young people who are reading my books. I often say, you know, the kids I write for today are going to be politicians with Twitter accounts tomorrow. Mm. I take that seriously, you know. You know, I I think that if they read these books now and that they find their activism now, hopefully they will be greater people later. So it's important for me to empower them. It's important for me to show them that it can start with them things they can make change in their own worlds that can in turn help change the world Mm. so I I look at my books as hopefully being investments in the future um, so that when I'm in the retirement home I can be like you know what Mm -hmm. I think everything's gonna be all right (laughs) (laughs) so the hate you give was made into a film last year what was that experience like seeing that story on the big screen That was surreal. Um, I I still tear up when I watch it. You know, I have like three copies of the Blu-ray at home right now and like the digital and all of that. And I still get emotional every time I watch it. It's it's surreal. And I remember my first day on set, I couldn't believe that all of these people had come together to Mm. bring my words to life. So it's it's humbling, too, in that sense. Um, And and also it shows me what's possible. And I hope that it shows my readers what's possible. You know, I never expected any of this to happen to me, but it did. 
did so they can do even greater mm. and and now on the come up is also going to be made into a film yes so who are the actors that you would love to cast oh let's see i'm gonna have to do this as the author and not the producer because i'm a producer on on the come up so these are my angie the author mm-hmm. picks not angie the producer picks so okay. i won't get in trouble um I would love, because I love her, I would love for Taraji P. Henson to mm-hmm. be in this movie. I love mm-hmm. Taraji. Like, I've been a fan of Taraji since Baby Boy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Jody, 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 you know. Yeah. <laughs> I've been a fan since then. But yeah. I would, I love her because not only is she such an, a great actress, but she's such an empowered woman and she empowers other women. And I think if nothing else, that energy on set would be mm-hmm. amazing. So I think she would bring it um, to this movie. Um, and, you know, I want to see some female rappers make appearances mm-hmm. in the movie you know this mm-hmm. is a movie about a young woman who's a rapper yeah. i want to put as much spotlight on them so cardi i would love for you to make mm-hmm. appearance you know okay, missy yes. i'd even nikki i can keep y'all separated <laughs> you know we don't have to worry about any drama yeah but um i i i would love um as many women in hip-hop to make appearances in this so that we can say that they're here they're making themselves heard and they inspired this generation mm-hmm. so let's inspire more generations okay great and so you're from Jackson, Mississippi, and we're actually yeah. just talking about like catfish restaurants. Yeah. Right? Um, why is it important for you that you stay there, that you rep for that mm-hmm. part of the country so much? Well, you know, it's, it's a struggle, I can't lie. But the reason that I've stayed as long as I've stayed is because I want to be there so that the kids in Jackson mm-hmm. can see someone who looks like them, who's around them, who's doing something positive and doing something on a big scale, you know. Um, I want them to come into the grocery store and see, oh, that's Angie she wrote that book so that means somebody that's like me did that I can do even better than that you know it's kind of like what Nelson Mandela used to say he always made it his intention to he always made it his priority to shake people's hands Mm. because he wanted them to touch him and know what's possible so Mm. that's been my reason for staying so that those kids there can know what's possible okay um, and so this book is about hip hop, and you said that you used to spit some rhymes back in the day. <laughs> do you remember any verses? Oh, spit! I know you're a little bit on the spot, but you know I do remember one that I came up with, and it's just the hook of it. I remember the hook, okay. and so it was like my hustle, my grind. I'm all about getting mine. Okay. Benjamin's papers. Hey. I'm talking about dollar signs. I wish somebody would try to stop my flow. I wish somebody would try to stop my show. My hustle, my grind. I remember that. I'm cool down. Okay, you brought it on the spot. Angie, thank you so much for joining us. On the Come Up is available now. Up next, more AM to DM. Here's a story from Broadly, how the internet became a playground for exploiting Black creators. Joining me now is Sarah Ibrahim, say it with me. Shamira Ibrahim. Shamira Abraham, thank you. Mm-hmm. Who wrote this story as the first entry in her column, Extremely Online. Hi, how are you? Hi, nice to meet you. Nice Glad to, to meet be here. You. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you because I obsessed with your story. Thank you. I so it. let's start with the beginning. Cause like rapper two Millie is suing Epic Games, right. right? For like using his Millie Rock dance. Correct, correct. Can you explain like what's happening with the like law procedure there? Right. So essentially what's happening is Fortnite is a very popular game. It's done by Epic Games. It's a multi-billion dollar game at this point. And they have this feature called emotes, mm-hmm. where at different points in the game, you can pay essentially approximately five bucks or so to do these different expressions or dances. And some of those dances are essentially facsimiles or copies of various popular dances. One of them is called Swipe It, which has been shown and proven to be 
essentially a copy of the Millie Rock, right? Mm -hmm. And you can even see YouTube channels of popular um, Fortnite fandoms that essentially say, oh, look at the Swipe It, AKA the Millie Rock. Right, right. right. So um, to Millie and the team at Pierce Brainbridge, the law firm have done a copyright infringement claim and a right to publicity claim, essentially claiming that they have copied their um, intellectual property and suing to get that compensation back and attribution back. Right. And then Fortnite is claiming that you can't copyright a dance, right? Like, that's what they're trying to say. Like, it's, right. a, it's for all or something right, like right. that. So the conversation started um, about maybe six months ago in October, where there was a lot of discussion around how you can whether copyright a dance or not. And the conversation is you can't copyright dance steps, right? Foundational mm. steps, because those are natural body movements. Mm. However, full sets of choreography, full pieces are intingent copyrighted pieces. And you get that copyright as soon as you finish that piece of work. So you don't need to file for the copyright. As soon as you finish it and you can prove it and it's attributable, so essentially via a music video, and hello, there's the Millie Rock music video. Right. Then you could actually prove that you have a copyrightable piece of choreography. Mm. And so what um, to Millie's team is essentially arguing is that they're making a red herring discussion, right? To say mm. that this is just a foundational piece of like dance steps as opposed to this is a full set of improvisational choreography and really kind of reducing the ability of black people to really be improvisational and create full steps as opposed to reducing it to like one four count. Right, because this like and this is something that has extended past just this situation like you wrote about in your story right. where we, a lot of black creatives have, you know, impacted culture in a way, even like the teens who built Vine and my thing, you know. But, exactly. But aren't able to profit from it or get like any types of accreditation from it. Right, right. And it's common. It's not just common in the digital media age. It's like just the latest iteration of it. Right. Social media has just made it a lot faster to get that profitization off of it, right? Because mm-hmm. with social media, the local becomes national at a way higher pace. And our legal laws and our copyright laws don't really keep up at the pace of our technology, right? right. So the lawmakers don't necessarily understand what's happening with our digital innovators, right? So right. our young creators who are in our neighborhoods who are really out here making this content, they're just up on Vine, they're up trying to put their music on SoundCloud, or wherever they may be, are just out here putting up all their hot shit, right? And yes. just not really realizing that people are watching it and saying, we can turn this into something and imply that it's public domain, even if really our innovation is what's being turned into their own content that's being made into revenue. And this makes me think of like two things. Like the first thing is like, how do we as like black creators share, like create, right? right? And put things out into the sphere while like being aware of cultural appropriation. You know, like where's the right. like, you want to do a video about like, you know, like on um, fleek, whatever, like the girl. Right. But then you were like, OK, but then when everybody's selling what's fleek shirts in Forever 21, like right. and then now I have a bunch of white girls from suburbia wearing white <laughs> fleek on my shirt. Like, right. How, is there really a balance that we can strike? And that's a hard question, right? Because really, we're getting to a point where we're kind of balancing both capitalism, technology and kind of accountability. And what a lot of these corporations are banking off of is that a lot of us, especially in the black community, don't really have the money or the resources to really all call on IP lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. To Millie and like Black Black Boy JB or Alfonso Ribeiro, you know, they have luckily the ability to call on IP lawyers who have really high retainers and try to get this, you know, ball rolling, right? But someone like Peaches Monroe or Kayla Newman, right, Mm -hmm. she may not have initially essentially been able to get an IP retainer who will say, you have to give me $10,000, you know, up front before I can even start to go look into filing a copyright infringement suit for you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the big things we can start doing is really just 
actually starting to create an artifact for that, right? At least holding people accountable and holding people attributable by documenting it. So there are things like, which I documented in the column, things like BET's I Went Viral, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a minor thing, it might seem like, but it's at least documenting that these things happened, right? They didn't Mm. just come up out of thin air, you know, all these white kids who learned these songs or learned these dances didn't just get them from a music video or a video game, right? They came from a local place. They came from young urban kids who really discovered something organically and created and made that made it their own. And once we start documenting it, that is the beginning of when at least the law and everything else starts to catch up, really starting to make some um, revenue and reparations for that maybe down the road. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. I wish well, I could talk so about much. this like all day because <laughs> really I have feelings. It. But thank you for writing about it. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Up next, Chantal sits down, has a sit down interview with Kiki Palmer. Chantal Rochelle, and this is The Sit Down. I'm here with actor Kiki Palmer, star of the epic drama Berlin Station. Good morning, Kiki. Hey, girl. How, How are you? Very good. Glad That's to be amazing. here with you. Glad to be here with you, too. So in Berlin Station, you play a CIA agent, but this season takes place in Budapest. So I'm curious, what activities did you do to really familiarize yourself with the surroundings and the environment? Well, you know, it was so different because we shot the, the second season in Berlin. That's when I became a part of the cast. And then the second season, I was very excited to get to Budapest. But I didn't realize how much of an even bigger culture shock it would be than Berlin. Because in Berlin, people, you know, kind of still speak English. There were some things that reminded me of back home. Like some places look like New York. But in Budapest, it's all so historical. You know, mm-hmm. there are castles and not a lot of the people speak English. So the language barrier was definitely a little bit more tough. Mm-hmm. But I got to do a lot of fun stuff. I did like some exciting escape rooms, you know, my birthday was out there. And so I did, like, I went to a place where they call it makery, where you actually can make the food for yourself and then eat it. And that was really a fun activity. Went on some boat rides and, you know, like, seen a tour of the city and stuff. So it was cool. It was a lot of stuff to do, that's for sure. That's what's up. So did you win the escape room? I did. But, you know, it's a group effort. And Mm -hmm. I have to admit, we was kind of almost about to squabble Mm -hmm. in there because it gets real tough. When everybody's not playing their role and getting it done, then we get mad. I know you took charge. (laughs) Yes, we got to win. Exactly. (laughs) I definitely did. Now, as a self-proclaimed, you know, daredevil, as Mm -hmm. you mentioned, you said, you mentioned that you weren't really phased by the stunts you had to do on set. So I'm really curious, what does phase Kiki? Like, what gets you like, oh, no, no, I can't do that? Oh, my gosh. You know... (laughs) Nothing, I'm not that scared of stuff. I think I think the things that would maybe scare me the most are like life type of mm. stuff. Like, oh, if I don't reach my full potential, that's horrifying to me. Yeah. But like, you know, other things like, oh, jumping, bungee jumping, I would try it, okay. you know what I'm saying? I would do that kind of stuff or coming out of a jet, whatever, any type of crazy thing that you would think I would mostly be all right with doing unless it bothers my health or it, you know, going to make me not become my full best. Yeah, or the mental. You have to yeah, exactly, that for exactly. Sure. <laughs> well, being the booked and busy queen that you are, you are also starring in Pimp, which you executive produced. Thank you so much. And I'm curious, are you at all with your history of your child acting? Are you, did you choose this role with that in mind, the intention of saying, I'm going to really look outside the box? Did this role mm-hmm. really influence that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I always loved acting, but as a kid, they're not always these type of different roles to take on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's either you're the funny, rambunctious kid, or you're maybe the stoic, you know, serious kid. You're into the, the school stuff or whatever it is. They're not a lot of differences. For me, coming out of doing so much of that, I was just really ready to, to really challenge myself as a, as a now adult actor. I was 18, 19, coming off of True Jackson, which I had done for about 
four or five years. Yeah. And I was just ready to really challenge myself as an actress and, and get out of what I was used to. Yeah, as well as a child star, do you think that people respect you now as an adult you know, actress that you are today? Sure, I think definitely uh, my feedback that I get from my audience is that they're just happy to see that I'm still around and still into it. And I think a lot of times as being a child actor, it can be very overwhelming and, and that stop and that pause is necessary. I never really took that pause, but that was a personal choice of mine. Um, and it's cool to see that my, the people that follow my career appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. And you have really pushed in this role. You shaved your head. Mm -hmm. You gained 20 pounds of muscle. So what was it like getting used to that new look and, and navigating the world in that space? Like, yeah, I got, I'm jacked up. Yeah, navigating the world in that space was like a crazy experience. Yeah. It was just the fact that, you know, I had to stay in the mindset of Wednesday, which is far less positive than my own. And you can't really step too far outside of it because, you know, you're going to be on the set the next day or the next morning or whenever. And that was difficult, you know, because that's not who I am. And I'm, I'm, it was just like hard to kind of shake off. The physical aspect just made diving into that character mentally much easier because when I looked in the mirror, I also didn't look like myself. Mm -hmm. But after a while, that is tough because you're like, where, where am I at? Yeah. You know? uh -huh. So who did you study to get that get that pimp going? Getting Cleo inspiration? Oh, de well, I think just in general, that, that character was yeah. definitely inspiration. Probably also for even when the script was being written. I mean, of course, I didn't write yeah. it, but characters like that made it possible for mm. characters like Wednesday to even star in a movie. So much love to Queen for that. Um, but in terms of my inspirations, I think, you know, in the music industry, it's not that far different from... The pimp industry. Yeah. So a lot of my inspirations <laughs> came from that, you know, my world and different characteristics that I felt uh, that I would see in myself that I wanted to amp up for Wednesday or even other people that I felt reminded me of, oh, that might be something that Wednesday would, yeah. you know, maybe I could bring to the character. I think as an actor, you're always picking up on human nuances, how yeah. somebody looks and blinks and moves and what, you know, what their habits are, just because you never know what you might want to take to a character. Absolutely. I mean, you have conquered all. I mean, you're never oh, not booked in busy. Thank so you, so you are much. also super active on social media. Yes. I love your Southern Belle insults. Thanks, girl. Like I'm obsessed. As a Southern girl myself, let's take a look into Miss Lady Jacqueline over mm -hmm. here. I can really take off my gloves oh. and treat you like the sack of potatoes and cheap frock that you are. Oh my God. One bit of advice, Janet. Oh. If you're going to use a prop, just remember, like all things in life, the bigger, the better. It, it's just perfect. It's I so good. I hate to laugh at my own self like that, but it's, it's just so dramatic, the it's, character. And it's, I also grew up a woman like that. So how did you come oh, up with I? this concept, and who was the inspiration behind it? So I think the inspirations came from a lot of different things. You know, it came from my kind of natural sass that I have in my family, and my grandmother, really. Mm. She was that sassy Southern gal from Mississippi, grew up in Memphis. And then also other comedian, uh, female comedians that I grew up watching, like yeah. Jack K. Harry or Jennifer Lewis. Yeah. They, are, they are so awesome to me. Um, but the how it came apart was I was just doing my digital content. I started working with a guy named Max and we were like, you know, going back and forth on different things and the ideas that we could bring to digital and Southern Bell Insults was born out of that and uh, we just kept going. First we did one little one mm -hmm. and then we saw that the fans really, really liked it and then he was like, yo, let's keep going and we just kept get, kept going. You know? Yeah, people are recreating that. I myself, I was like, Chandler <laughs> Man of Southernness? I was yes. like, yes. I was like walking down the street, how dare you? Yes. Like, I just became her. I'm like, yes. what the? Just yes. one. Yes, exactly. Now, you recently mentioned that you were a little mad at Drake for, you know, making your name really mainstream from his In My Feelings song. No one can, you cannot walk down the street without hearing Why did he song. do that to me? So, tell me, did you, talk, did you have a conversation with Mr. Aubrey? I didn't, when I actually just seen him not too long ago, and I wasn't even, I didn't even say anything. I was just like, like, hey, you know, and kept about my business. I didn't think in my mind uh -huh. to be like, now why did you do 
this song yeah. like this. And why wouldn't you put the original Kiki in the video? Okay, that, that come on, love. That, answer. So, that was a bad marketing joke. Okay, that, you should have been front and center. Okay, front and center. So can you do us a favor and transform into this Lady Jacqueline and give Drake a piece of your mind for us in this oh, camera right over been here? Prepared for this. Drake, I see that you've made a song named after someone named Kiki. But the reality is, there's only one Kiki that really, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, dang, I should've write, you know, I have to write so myself good, I'm like, so I'm like, I'm going somewhere with it, but it's not in up there. We'll be back on the gram for the real, for the real response, okay? okay. Stay tuned, darling, she's coming back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued. Well, Kiki, thank you so much for stopping you. I really, really appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. You can check out Kiki in Berlin Station on Sundays on FX. Stay tuned for more AM to DM. We ask you all to send screenshots of your most random note in your notes app. Yeah. And BuzzFeeder Alp sent this. It's ass-eating season. God damn it, Al. <laughs> you know. What? Well, I don't. I just. I need to know the context. Or do I? I just, what's our hiring process? <laughs> <laughs> like, you're at BuzzFeed. I'm going to go find out after this. And yes, <laughs> sir. Blasian FMA had this to say about an interview with Representative Underwood. This desirability for a vocal person of color doing the work of inclusion and diversity may be true for content creators in the beauty industry, but in other genres of video, plenty of vocal people have reached the same ultra popularity. White people everywhere don't care. Uh, yes, and yeah. I think that was in terms of right. the uh, interview with Darian about right. uh, Jackie Aina, um, about how she's been able to profit off of it. But right. like we talked about just now and um, with, uh, with Rodley's story, yeah. yeah, with Shamira, that there's odd people who aren't able to, and that's right. a real... Thing. So, glad you're watching, glad you agree. Yes, good point. Mix Maven had this to say about my outfit. Oh my I just can't get over how fierce Sylvia's fit is right now. Oh my God. I want the people of AM2DM. You AM guys to are DM. so kind. People of AM2DM, where is the love for me? This is what I need to know right now. Where are my Paul McLeod level of thirst tweets? Where are my appreciation? Thank you, thank you. Yes, please. <laughs> Appreciate it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, so next week we have joining us Bing Liu, Ellen Page, Jay Barakel, and Anna Paquin. Yes, and thank you to our guests Darian Simone Harvard, Representative Lauren Underwood, Angie Thomas, Shamira Ibrahim, and Kiki Palmer. Sayyid Safi will be here Monday morning at 10 a.m. Have a great weekend. Happy birthday to my brother Justin, and goodbye, everyone. It's finally the weekend! <laughs> you did it! Praise him! Ha <laughs> ha!